So I'm sorry this is not going to be a typical Mother's Day sermon. If you've been with us, you know we're working through Luke, and I'm going to keep going through Luke. Um, so I was essentially born right about there in New Jersey. The first two years of my life we lived there, and it was kind of a really great place to live in, in the summer. Um, you know, our house was somewhere around here, so it was kind of a shorter walk to the ocean than I currently walk to my mailbox, and the bay was back on the other side, and it was just kind of a beach lover's paradise. At, at one and a half, two, I wasn't quite able to enjoy it all, but my grandmother lived there for years and years, and we would visit her. Um, but on Ash Wednesday in 1962, there is a combination of unusually high tides and a strong northeast wind that caused the, the ocean to literally wash over the island. It washed some houses right into the bay. It cut new channels through the island. And actually, my family had to be evacuated by the National Guard in amphibious vehicles. So it's kind of an exciting time. Um, in the worst areas on the island, the only thing that survived were houses that were up on pilings the pilings that went down to the rock. And, and we're going to talk about the foolish man building his house on the sand and the wise man building his house on the rock. But first, we're going to look a little bit at good and bad fruit trees. Um, so for a couple of weeks now, Wake and then Alistair Begg have been talking about um, Jesus' commands about judging. Um, Jesus said, do not judge and you'll not be judged. Condemn not and you'll not be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. And why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye and do not take notice of the log that's in your own eye? It used to be that John 3.16 was the verse that everybody knew and everybody quoted, but really in recent years it's become judge not and you'll not be judged. Um, our, our culture wants to turn that into essentially a free-for-all. Um, you know, you have no right to tell me what I'm doing isn't right. It's my reality. It's my truth. You have no right to tell me what my truth is. You can't judge my truth. You can't say whether it's valid or not because it's mine. It's my private truth. But as Christians, we know there is an absolute truth. That there is a right and wrong. The Bible lays out God's standard for righteousness. And honestly, we all miss it. But can we discriminate between godliness and ungodliness if we aren't to judge. Well, Jesus actually in the very next section in Luke 6 addresses that. He says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, and grapes are not picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure in his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of his mouth, or out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Sorry. Jesus tells us not to be judges, but he does tell us to be fruit inspectors. And, and maybe I need to clarify that a bit, because we use the same term, judge, for the guy in the black robe with a gavel sitting on his high and mighty dais condemning people to, to prison or worse. Um, but we also use the name judge for the guy at the county fair who decides which apple gets the blue ribbon and which one gets the red ribbon. When Jesus tells us, judge not and you'll not be judged, condemn not, and you'll not be condemned, forgive, and you'll be forgiven. He's telling us not to be that law judge, 
sitting there high and mighty and condemning people, pounding our gavel down and say, you go to hell. Because they didn't measure up to my standard of righteousness as the judge. But condemning others is above my pay grade. That, that's God's job, it's not mine. He knows what's in a man. He knows what's in a person's heart. He knows their story that I don't know. And I'm just not qualified to judge because I'm a sinner too. I don't know that person's story the way God does. God knows every detail. But because I'm a human and because I'm a sinner, he calls me to forgive with the same liberality that he's forgiven me. It's the kind of compassion and understanding of a sinner that Jesus expressed when his arms were being nailed to the cross and people were mocking him and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's the way I'm to forgive because that's the way I've been forgiven. But the judge at the county fair is well within his job description to differentiate between the wormy apple and the really nice pretty apple, the tasty fruit. The fruit tells you what kind of tree it is at the heart. The fruit tells you about the root. Or as Jesus said, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So we ask ourselves, so what does good or bad fruit look like? How do we know what good fruit is? In America, we tend to think good fruit is God's blessing, right? So life going well, everything going our way, you know, the crops are growing well, there's no equipment breakdowns, um, prices are good, life is peaceful, the kids are behaving. Um, th those are the things we tend to think, well, that's, that's, that's good fruit. When we see somebody for whom everything is going well, don't we say, he must be living right? And when things are going bad for us, don't we say, God, what did I do wrong? Why are you punishing me? You know, so even if we won't admit it, in our minds we'd say, yeah, blessing is, is life going well. But if financial success and good life was really the measure of godliness, then all we would need to do is look at Forbes' list of billionaires and to identify the most godly people on the planet. You know, and, and we would say, well, Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and uh, you know, people like Tom Brady, they would be spiritual superstars, right? And Jesus and Mother Teresa would be spiritual nobodies because they don't have that kind of wealth. While we look up to successful people like those and try to copy them, financial success doesn't seem to be a very good standard. Paul gives us a different measure of good and bad in Galatians. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, evil, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, 
gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. My heart, my core, is always producing fruit. And it comes in the form of outward actions, attitudes, and words. Some of that fruit is good, and some of it isn't. And it reflects what's inside. Paul said in Romans, For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? But the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So the fruit of sin is evil and it's death. And the fruit of godliness is sanctification or becoming more righteous, more like God and eternal life. Now you may be thinking, yeah, but I know some people who totally deny that God exists, but they seem to be gentle, they seem to be patient, they seem to be kind. In fact, you know, they live better than a lot of Christians I know. And the fact is, for me personally, I'm pretty good at steering clear of some of those things on Paul's bad fruit list. You know, I don't have much trouble with drunkenness and sorcery or orgies. And I can usually keep it together enough when I'm around nice people that I don't outwardly show signs of anger or strife or jealousy, which can fool me into thinking, yeah, I've got those things under control. Those, those aren't issues for me. But if you think about a tree, the fruit isn't always visible. You know, there's only a month or two of the year where you can see the fruit. There's long periods of time where you really can't tell one tree from another. We have a, a peach tree at home that is just an absolutely beautiful tree. It's got lots of leaves and it's just gorgeous, but it almost never makes peaches. And even when it does, it's just one or two. Um, so, you know, most of the year it looks like a great tree, but when it comes to bearing fruit, not so much. Um, so the real measure of a person's fruit is honestly when the pressure's on. When I'm short on sleep, when things aren't going the way I planned or, or worse, that's when the fruit of anger or strife or jealousy or idolatry, putting my trust in something other than God, that's when they come to the surface. And we like to say, well, I'm just acting badly in those stressful moments because I'm not really myself. But the fact is that at those moments of stress, that gives us the clearest picture of our real self, sadly. Because at those times where we can no longer keep the good show up, we can no longer you know, keep the pasted smile on, we can no longer act well. It's when the real fruit in our lives bubbles up. So why does Jesus tell us to take note of fruit? If we're not to condemn the sinner, what are we supposed to do with this looking at fruit? Well, I, I think there's at least three good applications for looking at fruit, for fruit inspection. And the first is to examine my own heart. I've got news for you. E even though we've been reconciled to God through the shed blood of Jesus, and even though we have the Holy Spirit living within us, we still have rottenness in our core. Paul says, For at that time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, 
and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So that godly fruit doesn't just come automatically. It takes an active choice on my part about how I'm going to walk. It takes trying to discern what's pleasing to the Lord in the face of conflicting messages from from within myself. It takes working with the Holy Spirit to identify those holdings of sin still in our in our hearts um, and allowing him to transform us allowing him to make me hate those things and love God's way so I'm, I'm a sinner saved by grace I'm growing in Christ likeness but I'm incapable of doing anything good on my own turning that around I still have a sin nature in me um, that responds in ungodly ways. I mean, I've been following Jesus for more than 50 years, and I'm still ashamed of the evil that can fill my mind or come boiling out of my mouth at those times of stress or emotions or just in daily living. I'm growing. I'm becoming more like Jesus. And I can tell by the fruit, but my fruit isn't ready to win the state fair yet. But it's getting better every day. So Jesus has me in a training program. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it will bear more fruit. Or as the writer of Hebrews says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So the Lord's at work in our lives to make us more fruitful, to cause us to bear more fruit of righteousness. When we see unrighteous fruit, it's a good opportunity for us to go to the Lord and ask him to show us what the root is. Where does that ugly fruit come from? What, what lies am I believing? What are the wrong values that I'm holding to? Where do I need to die to myself and live to him? Good fruit comes from abiding in the Lord, from drawing our life from him, from dying to ourselves and allowing him to live through us. Jesus said in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Lives that bear good godly fruit glorify God and prove that we're disciples of Christ. We want to check the fruit in our lives to be sure that we're growing in Christ-likeness. So that's kind of the first use for fruit inspection, to inspect my own heart. The second is really closely related to the first. We can look at the fruit in other people's lives. Not to condemn them, not to say, you're going to hell, not to, you don't measure up, but to spur one another on to pursue the Lord. The writer of Hebrews says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're to be encouraging each other. We're supposed to be spurring each other on in the Lord. Jude says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. 
To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained with flesh. Being part of God's new family means that we're looking out for the well-being of each other, of the other family members. Again, the focus is not condemnation. It's encouragement. Hey, I'm seeing good fruit in your life. You know, way to go. Keep digging into the Lord. Or maybe saying, hey, you know, what's up? Your, your fruit looks a little sickly. Are you okay? Can I help you find the Lord in that situation? How can I help you? So the third application of fruit inspection is choosing whom we follow. In the New Testament, we're repeatedly told to imitate the godly examples around us. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And that's a really bold statement about his Christian walk. Because, like I said earlier, we're all sinners. We all sin. We're all saved by grace. We're supposed to be growing in Christ-likeness. But even Paul admitted in Romans that he failed to do the good that he wanted to do. So I see the second half of his statement here as both an affirmation and a caveat. Paul affirms that you can imitate him because he is striving to imitate Jesus. But I think he's also telling his readers not to imitate him when he fails, when he's not imitating Jesus. And, and there were times he admits when he didn't. The writer of Hebrews says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Consider the outcome of the way, their way of life. In other words, look at the fruit and imitate what's good and what's bearing good fruit. The sad fact is that even among spiritual leaders, not all who claim to follow Christ really are. They may have started out sincerely, but they may have gotten sidetracked on the way and are seeking things other than good fruit. Unfortunately, there's a lot of examples out there. In fact, we struggle to find examples where there, there aren't issues. Um, essentially, the whole letter of Jude is warning people about, or warning the, the people he's writing to about people who seem to have reached positions of leadership in the, in the church. Um, as he describes it, he describes them as ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and denying our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. These are shepherds feeding themselves, fruitless trees in autumn, twice dead, uprooted. These people are called shepherds, so they, they seem to be, have been Christian leaders, and they may have looked good for a time, but they're seeking their own interests, they're seeking their own gain, they have no fruit in the autumn when apples should be ripe, but there's none there. Jesus warned, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. To so the fruit of a person's life will tell you whether or not you should be following them. And yes, it's fair to examine the fruit of a leader's life. James says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. <coughs> For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. But if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Leaders are held to a higher standard. James, the brother of Jesus, says that we all stumble. So there's grace. There needs to be grace for tripping up and repenting. Stumbling and repenting is honestly the path to growth 
in the Christian life, but willfully and habitually pursuing a path contrary to biblical teaching or the absence of real sincere repentance when we fail should, shouldn't be allowed in Christian leaders. And honestly, that's why we as elders spend a lot of time screening the folks that, that we show as, as videos, uh, just to be sure that, that we're giving you good examples to follow. Teachers are held to a higher standard. So after talking about fruit, Jesus transitions to talking about houses. He says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who, call, who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears and does not do them, this is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of the house was great. I started out this morning talking about the storm of 1962 that devastated the barrier island off the coast of New Jersey. And almost exactly 50 years later, in 2012, Hurricane Sandy hit the same area and brought similar devastation to the same island. The houses that were built on pilings, which was a legal requirement for ones close to the ocean, those pilings went down deep. There was lots of erosion around them. The sand was washed out from underneath them. Their stairs were left hanging in the air, but the houses themselves weren't damaged. But there were also houses that were built on the ground still that were destroyed. And you can tell from the picture that some of those houses on the sand were really built well. They were nice looking houses. People had invested a lot of money in them, but they weren't built on the right foundation. So I think it's really important to see what Jesus says about the two different builders. Because we kind of say, yeah, yeah, those people building on the sand, those are those people out there who never come to church. Jesus said they both came to him. They both heard his words. The guy whose house stood, and Matthew calls him wise, did what Jesus said. The guy whose house fell, the foolish man from Matthew, heard Jesus' words, but didn't do them. I mean, if you will, these guys were both Jesus seekers. They put themselves in a position to hear his words. Both stayed awake and listened to the sermon. They probably both felt encouraged by what they heard, but one did what Jesus said and one didn't. Interestingly, both Matthew and Luke give this illustration. And in both cases, it immediately follows the Beatitudes. So it would appear that this story about houses was the way that Jesus concluded that sermon of the Beatitudes. Essentially, he was saying, if you do what I just said, what you just heard me preach, this Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, if you do those things, you're building your house on a solid foundation. If you just listen politely, but don't do what I said, your house is on the sand, it's going to fall. So what did Jesus say in the Beatitudes that we're supposed to put into practice? We've been talking about that for a couple of weeks and I'm not going to read it all. Um, you'll be relieved. But, but I would suggest that, that, that you do read it. Uh, but here's some highlights. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. 
Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Judge not, and you'll not be judged. Condemn not, and you'll not be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. I mean, those are challenging statements and commands. They're the ones that I read and say, Jesus can't really mean that. He can't mean that literally because I can't do that. And to be clear, I don't think Jesus was saying, well, it's just the Beatitudes, and if you do just the Beatitudes, you're good. Clearly, he meant all the statements he made. Statements like, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and for the Gospels will save it. Those are hard. Those are really hard. And when I preached about those statements a few weeks ago, I said that they only make sense in a different worldview than than the one we live in. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. Have you ever tried to fix something, gotten a wrench, on a nut and cranked on it and cranked on it and cranked on it and it would not budge till finally you figured out it was left-handed instead of right-handed thread and it came right off. Or what about, you know, you go to open a door and push it and it must be locked and then, oh, it pulls. Uh, you know, we, we've, we've all done that. To the foolish man who built his house on the sand, it looked like a good idea at the time. Sand is usually level or it's easy to level out. And when sand is packed hard, it's it's actually a pretty firm surface. I mean, I have driven my Suburban on the sand. It's a little bit tough to get across the dunes, but once you get down by the water, it is is hard. You can drive any vehicle on it. It doesn't budge. We recently built a barn and we brought in quarry dust to, to use for fill. And Cash Lassen would just lay down a couple inches and then pack it with his skid loader, and it was, it was solid rock. Um, Caleb had to put in some water lines, and he had to dig with a pick to get it open uh, to, to make the trench. But we were away, and, and some rains came, and by the time we got home, it had washed more than a dump truck load out of that, that pile, because with the wa- moving water, it just picked that sand up and moved it out of the way. Building on sand can seem like the way to go. But like we saw with the houses in Hurricane Sandy, it's not a sure foundation for the storms of life. So when the Bible speaks about sand, it's almost always talking about big groups of people, like an army or like the nation of Israel. For example, Paul said, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. So I think Jesus' use of sand may just be pointing to what people would know, that sand is not a stable foundation for a house. But I wonder, honestly, if he's also pointing to the risk of following kind of popular opinion, of following the direction of the crowd in seeking the foundation for our lives. In Matthew, just before Jesus 
tells the story about the houses. Matthew says that, that he also said this. He said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, for those who find it are few. So the way the crowd looks easy, it, it feels natural because it does. It fits with our sinful nature. It seems to us like it should be perfectly fine, but Jesus says, don't go there. It's destruction. It's a dangerous path. This is sort of an aside, but in Revelation, John describes the dragon who opposes the church. He says, when the dragon became furious with the woman and, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, and he stood on the sand of the sea. That description, he stood on the sand of the sea, comes at the end of a passage that really doesn't give much description of the setting. Um, it seems like just a meaningless piece of trivia thrown in there. But is it? Is it that the dragon is standing on the opinions of the crowd? It's right next to the description of the Christians who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, which could equally be said those who stand on the commandments of God and stand on the words of Jesus. So in saying that the dragon appears the, the, the dragon appeals to the wisdom of the masses, to the popular opinion of the crowd, in contrast to the rock of the word of God. And if you've paid attention to the uproar in the last week about the leaked Supreme Court draft decision about abortion, you certainly get the feel that our country is polarized along those lines. The, the opinion of the crowd versus godly wisdom. So what about the biblical use of the rock as a metaphor? Well, you don't have to look very far to find plenty of those. Rock is used 32 times in Psalms alone. Psalm 62 captures what I think Jesus had in mind when he talked about the person who obeyed his teaching, having a house built on rock. It says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. The psalmist is placing his hope in God alone. He's waiting for his salvation to come from God. He's not looking for his own ability to solve problems. He's not looking to his wealth, to his own strength. He's not looking to the legal system. He's not looking for somebody, some earthly way to rescue him, but only on God. And he waits patiently for God to bring salvation, to make everything right. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. This man isn't trusting in anything else and he won't be shaken because God is the one thing in all of creation that can't be shaken. He's the one thing that's completely unchangeable. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. That's exactly where I go astray when I trust in other things, when I don't trust that I can turn the other cheek and that God will supply my needs, that God will take care of me in that situation. It goes on, those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Money or the lack of money, nothing to trust in. Put no trust in extortion, 
Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. It's not in money. It's not in physical strength. It's not in knowledge. It belongs to God. And that to you, O God, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his works. We can turn the other cheek because God is our rock in our salvation, not our ability to defend ourselves, not our ability to get even, not the legal system to get us justice. God alone is our rock. God alone is where justice comes from. We don't trust in our estate or our social status or our riches. God has the cattle on a thousand hills. God's our mighty rock, the very mightiest one. No one can stand before him. All power belongs to him. Steadfast love belongs to him, which means that he will always, always, always act in love towards us. We can trust him at all times. And that means that we can trust Jesus' words, even when they seem crazy to us, like turning your other cheek. We trust that our view of the world is distorted and that God is lovingly telling us what is true. Is it easy? No. Building a house on a rock isn't easy. Jesus describes the man who built his house on the rock as one who dug down deep and laid the foundation on the rock. Digging is hard work. So is changing our mindset from relying on ourselves to relying on God, from trusting what our eyes see to trusting what is unseen. China recently opened the longest glass bottom bridge in the world. It's over a quarter mile long and it's 980 feet above the ground. So it's, it's engineered to be completely safe, of course, until it isn't. Um, but it's still hard to step on that clear glass. And it's, you look at, here's this woman making a big deal of, hey, I'm sitting on the glass and they're taking pictures of her. But here you see people, they're walking on the, the hard part. They're not stepping on, the, on that glass. And I, I, I can't blame them. Um, and, and it's a lot like that in trusting God, right? People are tending to walk on the opaque part of the bridge. But in reality, that's no safer than the glass part of the bridge, right? If it goes down, it's all going down. And that's where the analogy falls apart. Because talking about God's ways... The part of the glass is in fact the most secure part of the bridge. And the part that looks solid, that we naturally think, yeah, that, that's okay. That's really the illusion. That's the part that would cause us to fall. So as the song says, on Christ, the ro solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. I, I think most of us would quickly say, yes, God is my rock. But Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? If he's really our Lord, if he's really our rock, if we're really putting our complete trust in him, then we trust his words. And we would do what he says, even if it looks like a glass panel over a chasm. We trust in him rather than our senses. God's instructions are absolutely sure. God is unchanging. He's faithful. He's always true. He's always loving. 
our earthly sin-altered eyes look at his ways and say, well, that's, that's not safe. They say, trust yourself, trust in the wisdom of other people. But that's sand. Only God is a rock. Only by abiding in the vine can we bear fruit that will survive the storm. I wanted to read Psalm 37 to you, which really, I think, kind of wraps up a, a picture of what it is to live this way. And I don't really have time to, to do that. Um, don't want to take up too much of your Mother's Day. But if you get home, read that. I'll, I'll just give you a little portion to tease you. The psalmist says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Do not be envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. They look like they're standing on the rock, but they're not. They're not. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Let's pray. God, our, our hearts just lead us astray. God, our, our physical eyes deceive us. God, we, we think you're not trustworthy and that this earth is, and earth stuff is, is where it's at. God, forgive us. Lord, change our eyes, change our hearts. Do the work of your spirit in our hearts to root out that sin and Lord, to replace it with faithful trust in you. Um, Lord, that we could walk with you, that we could bear good fruit, uh, that we could stand on you, our rock, and on you alone. Lord, I ask that you have blessed our moms. Lord, bless those who've led their family in, in godly directions. Lord, may we follow the good examples that have been set for us. In Jesus' name, amen.